Let's pray together. Father, that is the prayer that we offer to you corporately. Would you speak to us through your word until all of the earth is full of your glory. We have no hope apart from you. You are our chosen portion and our cup. You hold our lot. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. So we bless the Lord who gives us counsel. In the night also our heart instructs us. I have set the Lord always before me, and because you are at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to us the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Make that a reality for us this morning. Would your word sink deep into our hearts that Christ would be magnified today. That's our prayer, Lord. We ask you to do it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is good to be with you this Lord's Day. Before the change of the calendar, as we approach a new year, I hope you can look back and have plenty of opportunities to be thankful to the Lord for his faithfulness. We all have much to be thankful for, and I hope that's the attitude as we head into the new year that we are overflowing with thankfulness to the Lord. He's been very good to us as a church. He's been good to us individually. We want to celebrate that. Well, we are through the Advent season and spent a good few weeks in Isaiah there, so we are going back into the Gospel of John where we left off in November. So If you have your Bible with you or a device, would you open to John 11? And I'm just going to kind of recap where we've been and where we're going for the next few weeks. So we're going to start back here in John 11 today. We're going to go 1 through 16. Next week, I'll be back, and we're going to take 17 to 44, Lord willing. And then Tyler will finish chapter 11 on the 13th of January. So we've got three weeks in John 11, and this is... A tremendous chapter. I hope you've read in preparation, and if you haven't, that's all right. We're going to go through the whole thing together little bit by little bit. And so that's kind of where we're going. That's where we are. And so I'm going to read our text, which is John 11, 1 through 16, and I invite you to follow along as we begin this morning. John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. It's the word of the Lord. So I want to set just a little bit of context as we get into John 11. That's the way John starts the chapter in these first two verses. And so there's a little bit of significance to where we are. If you remember back in our journey that we've taken through the Gospel of John, this is the last and final miracle that John records. It's also the seventh miracle that John records. If you remember um, in chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. That was kind of the inauguration of his public ministry. In chapter 4, he heals the official son. In chapter 5, he heals the invalid by the pool. In chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. Later in chapter 6, he walks on water. In chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. And now in chapter 11, we have the account of him raising Lazarus from the dead. All of these signs, all of these miracles that Jesus did had the same design. They were meant to show, just like John says at the end of his gospel, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that seeing those who saw, those who read, those who now read this account would believe and have eternal life. The point was never just about the physical miracles, right? We've, we've talked about that. It was never about physically feeding the people. It was to show that we are fed by Jesus. There's always a spiritual application to these. And like I said, it's also significant because this is the last recorded miracle in John. Unless you count later in the garden <clears throat> when he heals Malchus after Peter hacks his ear off. But that was not a public thing. That was a private circumstantial thing. This is the last public miracle that John records in his gospel. And we can get most of the context I think that we need right here is regarding this family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the first two verses. So let's start there. We're just going to work through section at a time, 1 through 16, make some observations, ask some questions. You guys know the drill. So let's get started. Let's look at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we're introduced to this family right away in verse 1. And John includes this detail that it was the same Mary who anointed Jesus with perfume. Which, if you've been following along, you might think is strange because John hasn't talked about that yet, right? We don't get to that actually until chapter 12. So we need to ask, why does John put this detail in right here kind of ahead of time? And I think there's a couple reasons. So John is usually, at least in most circles, credited as being the last gospel to be written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had probably at this point already been penned and possibly circulated. And so I think John includes this detail because people would have probably already read about this or heard about this. They would have known, okay, that's Mary and Martha. We know that family. We remember reading about them, for instance, in Luke 10. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. 
But that's, maybe you've been uh, around the water cooler at work and you hear people talking about methane priority. No? Okay, that's fine. Um, that's just the idea that Matthew was written first and then Mark and Luke and John and so on. Um, so here's what this means. John, being an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus, knows that he's going to tell his readers about this event. He's writing the whole gospel. He knows what he's going to say ahead of time. And he makes this note so that it would kind of make sense when we come to it in chapter 12. The other possibility is, like I said, by this time, the other gospels had been penned. They were circulating even in a small way. And people would be familiar with this account. So what do we know about Lazarus, Mary, and Martha? Not a whole lot. Not much is said about them, but there's a couple things I think that we can learn to set our context. They lived in the village of Bethany, which we find out next week is about two miles from Jerusalem, and were apparently of considerable means. Um, I get this inference from Mary anoints Jesus with this perfume called nard, and it was really expensive. And they, they just would not have had access to that kind of stuff unless they had a fair amount of wealth themselves. So I'm not saying they were loaded. I'm just saying they weren't like a poor, impoverished family. I think they were fairly well off. Um, the other thing you can find out is I think, based on the account in Luke 10, is the account, you guys remember this, when Jesus is at their home, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he's teaching them, talking with them in their home. I think they had a really close relationship with Jesus because Jesus is teaching in an intimate setting in their home in Luke 10 and Martha's running around doing all this stuff, getting the food ready, washing the dishes, making their stuff's ready. Mary's sitting there listening to Jesus and Martha gets really upset and she comes in and she has at least a good enough relationship with Jesus to kind of bawl out her sister to Jesus and say, hey, she's not helping. So I think they had kind of this connection, this relationship with Jesus. And I think they were of fairly considerable means. So that just kind of sets the context for where we're at. Maybe it doesn't make a huge difference to you. So let's keep moving in our text. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, well, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And to me, this account in John 11 demonstrates very clearly both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. When the sisters send word to Jesus and tell him, the one whom you love is ill, this word that is translated, the word love here, is, is very intimate. It says that the one that you have great affection for is ill. This isn't just a general love that God has for all of his creation because it's his creation. This is a personal, affectionate love that Jesus has for Lazarus and for this family. It denotes a personal attachment, a sentiment, a feeling. This is personal and specific. The sisters knew that Jesus loved them and their brother. This is why they sent word to him. They likely followed his ministry, again, from other gospels we know that he spent time with them he was in their home they were friends and they knew him well enough to know that if he chose to Jesus could heal Lazarus even from a distance in Luke 7 1 through 10 we read the account of Jesus healing the centurion's servant you guys remember this the centurion comes and talks to him and says look my servant's really ill he's been a really good servant I know that you can heal him 
but they're a ways off yet. And as they're going to his house, the other servants come and they say, forget it, he's dead. But Jesus heals him with not even being there. Remember that? And I'm sure the sisters knew this. Either they had been there and seen it because they were part of Jesus' ministry or they had heard about that. So I believe that they had faith that Jesus could heal Lazarus. That's why they sent word to him. Our brother is ill. Go tell Jesus. He can do something. Even if he can't come here, Jesus can heal him. It's no accident that John 11 follows John 9. If you remember back in October when I preached through John 9 and I said that when we're in difficult circumstances, we need to look for purpose, not for cause. And John carries this theme forward here to chapter 11 when he tells us what Jesus says in verse 4. Jesus hears the news that Lazarus is ill and he says this illness does not lead to death. And then explicitly he gives us the purpose of the illness. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That is the reason that Lazarus was ill. The cause could have been anything. Most people think it was fever or influenza or whatever was going around at the time. But the cause is not ultimately what's important. It's purpose. The purpose here, and Jesus is very explicit when he says this, it is for the glory of God. This has tremendous implications for how we are to handle the events of our lives. But more on that a little bit later. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Kind of puzzling, isn't it? These two verses is where I got the title of the sermon, The Nature of God's Love. You see, I think most of us have an idea in our mind of what love is, at least in a broad sense. We generally know what to think when someone speaks of love, but if that idea of love is not formed and molded on what Scripture says, it can be misguided and possibly dangerous. Love is spoken of often in Scripture and in various ways, but most often we read of God's love for His people and His care for His creation. Consider a few of the following passages. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. If you want to write these down, you can go back and look at them later. Deuteronomy 7, this is God speaking. For you are a people, Moses speaking on behalf of God, holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So in this case, we know that God loves his people because he keeps his covenant with them. Or a very familiar passage in Lamentations 3, we sing it very often. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. If we move on to the New Testament, we read in Ephesians 1, verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Or again in Romans 5, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
these and many other texts seem to show God acting out of love for us, for our benefit, for our good, and that seems to be the nature of God's love. So why, in John 11, do we read that Jesus, the Son of God, very God, loved Lazarus and his sisters, therefore he let him die? What kind of love is that? certainly does not seem to be fitting with the character of God, or does it? What is the nature of God's love? One dominant theme in Scripture, at least that I see, is that sacrifice is always closely associated with the love of God. Of course, the most obvious example of this is what we already read from Romans 5, that the way that God demonstrated His great love for us was to offer up his own son as the payment for our sin. Another way of saying this would be to say that the love of God that we experience, all the benefits that come to us from that, came at a great cost to him. The reason we have to know this, the reason we have to understand this about the love of God is because it tells us something of him. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but what? Delivered him up for us all, how shall he also not with him freely give us all things? In other words, giving up his only son was a great sacrifice for the father. But if he has done that, if he has done the greatest thing in giving up his son for us, surely he will do the lesser thing that we need him to do. He has proved his love for us in delivering Jesus up for us, and in doing so, we can know for certain that he will do the lesser thing that will serve us on our way to glory including bringing us to glory. Sometimes we forget that that is like the pinnacle of the love of God. It is not for here. It is not only for this world. And I think we forget that. I talk about that a lot because I want to have an eternal focus. I want you to have an eternal focus. That the love of God does not only serve us here, it serves us in eternity. And everything we go through here prepares us for that. And we need to see it that way. See, one of the words that I have become very familiar with and learned to appreciate in my walk with the Lord is the word ultimate. We may not think that God is working for our good when we're in the middle of hardship, but God is always working for our ultimate good, not our temporary good. Now translate that way of thinking onto this situation with Lazarus. We know that Jesus loved him. This is evident from what we read in the language that was used to describe the situation. We know that Jesus is all-powerful, that he could have simply spoken the word no matter where he was, and Lazarus would have been healed. We know that from Scripture. So why didn't he? Why does he let Lazarus die and allow the sisters to go through this, this hopelessness and grief? I mean, do you think about that? We, we often focus on Lazarus, but think about Martha and Mary. They loved Jesus. Jesus loved them. They didn't know he was coming to raise Lazarus. They didn't have the Gospel of John. All they knew was that their brother was ill and that he had now died and Jesus didn't come. So what's going on? I mean, it, I know you've probably been in that situation, maybe not that extreme. But have you ever been sitting there and, and just feeling like that, going, 
what's the end of this going to be? This doesn't make sense. You're, you're right in the middle of it, and it's just, just confusing. It's hurtful. You don't know what to think. You're praying your heart out, and nothing seems to be happening. What do we do? You look for purpose, not for cause. And you trust the sovereign Lord of the universe that he will do what's right. You see, there's something God values more than our comfort. There's something God values more than your physical life. He values his glory above all things and he will do whatever it takes to make his glory known in the world even if it means taking a life that he gave. I wonder if we have categories for that kind of love. It's not easy. I'm not up here telling you that that's an easy thing to get your mind around. It's not. That is really difficult. That is the nature of God's love. This is what we see Jesus demonstrate with Lazarus and his sisters. He loved Lazarus, and because of that love, he does what is ultimately best, which is to display the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon used a Latin phrase that I'm going to butcher when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyways. Ad majorum de gloriam, and it meant to do what will most glorify God. Everything glorifies God in some way. But as Christians, as shepherds, as believers, whatever your role is, our job is to do what will most glorify God through Christ And again, that's a hard thing because sometimes love can look very different than what we think it is. And here with Lazarus, the thing that will bring God the most glory is to let Lazarus die so that the power and divine glory of God can be clearly displayed to those who are watching. And this, of course, is not a new theme in Scripture. The psalmist wrote about this in Psalm 63, Turn back to Psalm 63 with me, please. I'm going to read this section because it is so important for us to understand this. Psalm 63, starting in verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Better than life. Can you say that right now? Can you honestly say that to be loved by God, to feel his hand on your life is better than the life that you are living right now? Let me tell you something. This life that we live is a finger snap compared to what eternity is. It is a blink of an eye. And it will be gone in a moment. And then what will you do? Maybe it's not your life that will be gone in a moment. Maybe it's a loved one. I live with this reality every day. Everybody does. You just might not know it yet. I've been given a special grace of knowing that 
My kidneys are shot from 35 years of diabetes. Any moment they could go. What do I do? Do I wither? Do I get depressed? Do I let it drag me down and be hopeless? The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. It's better. And you can know it. You can know it right here. You can see this in Jesus. You can see this in the account of Lazarus. God is always working for our ultimate good, and it might not be what you think is good. It might not be what you think a display of love should look like, but trust me, brothers and sisters, the love of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I want you to know that today through this account. So let's keep moving on in our text. We're going to move a little quicker as we go through. Let's look at 7 through 10, and then we'll take 11 through 16. So back to John 11. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So to recap just a little bit where we are in the narrative, Mary and Martha have sent word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. After hearing this, Jesus stays where he is for two more days. After the two days had passed, he says to his disciples, all right, let's go back to Judea, meaning let's go to Lazarus. The disciples are not too keen on this idea since the Jews had just recently tried to kill Jesus several times actually in Judea. If you remember um, John 10, 31, John 8, 59, um, you can imagine there's not too much excitement among the disciples about going back to this place. They just kind of got Jesus out of there. But when they voice their concern, Jesus answers with a maybe less than clear answer. In this section, verses 9 and 10 requires a little bit of explanation. So let's look at that for a moment. So Jesus answers his disciples' objection with a simple question. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Might seem like kind of an odd thing to ask after they just voiced their concern. You see, the Jews in that time considered the main part of the day to be a 12-hour period, which they divided up into four three-hour periods. And there's a very common way just to talk about daytime. That's when most business was done. That's when travel took place. It was extremely common to speak about time or something daylight like that. And so the disciples would have immediately understood what he was talking about. And Jesus uses this as a metaphor to help the disciples understand. He's saying, you know how there are 12 hours in a day, and if you plan travel within that time period, you can be assured that you'll come to the place you're going because you have light, and you're not going to trip over the root and the path, and so on. And so it was just an illustration to let them know that. But then he says, if someone travels at night, they stumble because they cannot see where they're going because the light is not in them. This contrast of light and darkness is very common for John. You guys remember, all the way through this, John has used this contrast of day, night, light, darkness, and it must have made a tremendous impact on the gospel writer because he uses it all over the place, including in his epistles. Which I just thought was interesting. You don't have to turn there, but 1 John 1, 5 through 7. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Or later in 1 John chapter 2, at the same time it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true to him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So this is a very common theme with John to use light and dark and he got it from Jesus. Right? Jesus is using this uh, passage to let us know. So I think this is what's going on in these two verses in 9 and 10. It's a declaration to me of the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. So we're going to see the humanity of Jesus and his love for these people and the way that his emotion even comes out next week. But we also see his deity, his godness, in this account for his absolute sovereignty. He's saying, I am the light of the world. My time has not yet come. As long as I'm here, nothing can harm me, nothing can thwart my plan or my purpose. How many times did the Jews try to kill Jesus? I mean, there was plots. There was spur-of-the-moment circumstantial stuff when Jesus said outrageous things about himself and they picked up stones to stone him. But every time the plan failed. Why? Because Jesus was sovereign over the circumstance of his life. His time frame was the one that mattered. He was not going to die one minute before it was his time. This is what John Gill would say, one of the commentators from a couple hundred years ago. So our Lord intimates that as yet it was day with him, his time of life was not yet expired. And so it was a time of walking and working. He did not fear any danger he was exposed to or any snares that were laid for him since he could not be hurt by any nor his life taken from him before his time. Isn't that great? We see the sovereignty of Jesus in saying, it's my life, I make the choice. You can remember this again from John 10 where in verse 18 Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. This statement of walking in the day is simply a way for Jesus to tell his disciples he is not afraid. He has sovereign control over the circumstances of his life and they can trust his good plans. And we can trust his good plans. It's the same for us. Let's look at this last section that we're going to look at for today. Chapter 11, verse 11 through 16. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I wasn't there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. When we come back next week, I'm going to deal more with this word awaken in verse 11. There's some significance, I think, to that, but for now let's just make a couple observations about this. The disciples still don't get it. They think that Lazarus is napping and that if they go wake him up, 
he's not going to get better. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Meaning, parents, what do you tell your kids when they're not feeling good and they come up like, you, you just need rest, you drink some water, you need to go rest? The disciples were like, well, Lazarus has a stomachache, he better sleep, and if we go there and wake him up, he's not going to rest and he's not going to get better. So Jesus gets as clear as he possibly can be and tells them simply, Lazarus has died. And in a moment of clear revelation, Jesus tells them the purpose behind what he's doing. And how many times have we seen, just in, just in John's gospel, Jesus does something, he performs a miracle, he does a sign, and the disciples don't get it, and Jesus tells them this parable or something that they just don't get. But here, getting to the end of his public ministry, Jesus tells them very, very clearly, it is so that you may believe. Isn't this the reason Jesus did anything? When you think about his ministry and his life and the purpose for why he came, isn't this the reason behind why he still does anything? So that others may see his glory and his power and believe in him. And just in case we've gotten this backwards, I just want to make a point of clarification. God does not need us to accomplish his purpose. He uses us to work out his plan so that others would see Christ in us and turn from their sins, repent, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life. The only reason God chooses to use us in accomplishing his purpose, maybe I should say one of the reasons, is that the bigger the audience, the greater the glory that he receives. This is a side note, but I think it fits in here, so I'm going to say it anyways. You remember the Tower of Babel. And you remember the dispersing of languages. And God mixed up every, and gave everybody a different language so they couldn't work together and they scattered and this language group went here and this language group went here and all over the globe. Fast forward to the end of the Bible and what do we see in Revelation? We see a group of people that is innumerable praising God from what? Every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. The diversity of worship that God gets from scattering those people is greater than if it would have been from one source. And that's why he uses us. Because the greater the audience, the greater the glory. For God, not for you, and not for me. It's all about him, and we should see that as we move through here. This is also what Paul was talking about in Philippians 1 where he says that his eager expectation, his hope, is that now, as always, Christ would be what? Magnified. Made to look great. That's what the word means. Blown up. Exposed. Bigger. Greater. That was Paul's desire in his life and in his ministry and in the churches that he planted. That's my desire for ministry in churches, and I hope and pray that it's yours. As you parent, as you live your life, as you're an employee, as you work, what can you do that will most glorify God? And there is something you can do that will most glorify God. Everyone has been given something to do. Everyone has a context. All of us do. You need to look for that, find out what that is, and maximize it for the kingdom. 
That's the responsibility that every believer has. So this brings me to where we're going to close for today with a question that I had to ask myself after going through the text, and maybe you've been thinking about this too, but, but here's the question. How do you and I show Christ-like love to one another? So we've seen the nature of God's love, that he does whatever it takes to demonstrate his glory, to show his great love for us, and in doing so, he shows us he values his glory more than he values anything else. But we are not God. We are not responsible for making the decision, should I intervene here or let the suffering continue? That's not our job. What is our job? How do we love the way that Christ loved? Our call is to love one another, to show compassion to one another, to bear with one another, to lift each other up and leave the work of sovereign wisdom and deciding what is ultimately best to God. So yes, we love like Christ loved, but no, we are not God. We leave that to Him knowing that he will do what is good and he will do what is right, just like he did with Lazarus. But we're leaving off here where there's a little bit of tension because Lazarus is still dead. There's two ways you can find out what happens. You can keep reading in John 11 and spoil it or you can come back next week. (laughs) And I hope you come back. We're going to keep going in John next Sunday. So read the text ahead of time. We're going to cover 17 to 44. And I just pray that the Lord would use this in your life. If you have any questions about what we've talked about today, I'd love to talk to you, pray with you. There's a way that all of us can glorify God through our lives, and I want to help you do that. So would you pray with me as we close for this morning? Father, we thank you so much for your steadfast love. We thank you that in Christ we have everything that we need that every blessing that could possibly come to us has come in Christ and all we have to do is believe and take advantage of it. So Father, just as we prayed when we began, plant your word deep in us. Shape us, mold us into the image of your Son so that we become more and more like him. We love you. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and ask that now you would go with us as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.